0: Optimal, At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer you a personal question? Now what it is it the seat in time. Man. What if I did the eye? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal mentoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm on the road playing road warrior, going from hotel to hotel, attempting to do interesting things. And of course, my job is to deconstruct world-class performers in each of these episodes. I interview many different people from various fields and tried to distill what makes them great, the lessons learned, the habits, routines, etc., And that ranges from four-star generals to chess prodigies to scientists, startup CEOs. And in this case, a world-class storyteller, Kevin Costner. Uh, of course, I grew up Uh, loving Kevin Costner films. He is an internationally renowned filmmaker across the board, uh, considered one of the most critically acclaimed and visionary storytellers of his generation. Costner has produced, directed, and or starred in such memorable films as Dances with Wolves, one of my favorites, JFK, The Bodyguard, remember the kitchen scene? Amazing. Many scenes in that. Field of Dreams, Tin Cup, Bull Durham, Open Range, Hatfields and McCoys, and Black or White, among many others. He's been honored with two Academy Awards, three Golden Globe Awards, and an Emmy Award. This episode also features John Baird, the author and illustrator of the novels Day Job and Songs from Nowhere Near the Heart. He is the co-developer, along with Costner, of the Horizon miniseries. Their first book collaboration is a Beautiful tome. It's really quite something to behold. The Explorers Guild, a passage to Shambhala, or Shambhala. I've never known how to say that. In any case, we get into all of that and more. And this episode is really split into three parts. The first part explores uh, Costner's background, lessons learned, and we dig into a lot of his specific films and roles. And I think at some point, uh, i refer to the big chill as the chill like a dum dum because i think i was just a wee bit nervous honestly uh <laughs> since uh, i've really only seen kevin on the screen before and he is uh he is a he's a very very Focused man with intense eye contact. We we had a great time and I really enjoyed it, but it was, it's weird going from screen to in person for the first time, I gotta say. Uh, But had a great time. I hope that translates to your experience of the conversation. We had it at his home and uh, we touch on a lot. The first, like I said, is his background, the history. Then we get into his current projects, including the book project, among many others. And then we do the rapid-fire questions that many of you are already familiar with, and those are always fun. And that's what we wrap up with. Uh, Kevin has an opportunity to get into some stories that I don't think he's really told anywhere else and had a blast. You can say hi to him on Twitter. Uh, and uh, he doesn't use social much, but I'm going to encourage him because he makes a couple of requests of the audience, and I'm going to point you guys to Twitter. So there are some opportunities, requests that come up here, at Modern West on Twitter, at modern west is kevin costner and uh, please enjoy this long and broad conversation with kevin costner kevin welcome to the show thanks i really appreciate you having me out here this is a beautiful spot you have i guess we're outside of santa barbara yeah and uh this is one of my favorite parts of the world uh but you did not start out here did you? I mean, where were you born?
1: I was. Uh, I was born in uh, Linwood, California. Lived in Compton mm-hmm. um, in f- nineteen fifty-five, and was there for about six, seven years, and then end up actually moving up in this general area here between Ojai and Santa Paula. Lived on a, a single street. Went to a one-room schoolhouse.
0: How many students were in that schoolhouse? I
1: don't know. It was. It was like I think the first through the sixth grade. So I don't know, there could have been 60 of us. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not even that many.
0: How did going to such a small school or growing up in that way um, impact you? I mean, do you you think? Well, I
1: didn't for very long. I actually didn't like it because uh, I, because of that, because of that idea that all these kids were in the school and the, you know, the, the, the teacher's impact was, could be the best it could be. I, I was way ahead when I went into that school where the school I had come from in Los Angeles, I was really far ahead. And my parents picked up on that really quick. And since I was such a rascal, they thought, man, he's not doing anything. You know, I, and I wasn't, and I was smart enough to keep my mouth shut about being (laughs) way up on this stuff. Um, and so, uh, but they moved me right out of that school really quickly back into i think a parochial school which is they don't mess around as you know
0: <laughs> and so they were your parents were concerned that you since you were further ahead would kind of sit on your hands and and coast through it
1: i don't i don't think they were worried about that i think they just my parents i tell you really you know i mean a lot of people i know they look back in their childhood and you know maybe wasn't the greatest or what mine was pretty good mine was very Huckleberry Finn, if it was, and a lot of that had to do with my parents were very focused in on their kids. I mean, my dad and my mom were at every little league game, every, everything, you know, so when people aren't able to, you know, when I've talked to people go, you know, my dad never came to one thing and probably a reason for it, but I didn't have that experience. You know, it was, uh, we didn't have a lot of money, but it was my backyard was my kingdom. And when my dad got home, we went to work in it.
0: And I read, and I don't know if this is true, that you were raised Baptist. Is that true? Yeah. Did you? How did that uh, sort of affect the lens through which you viewed the world? Or yeah, or probably
1: a good question. I tell you, it did. It obviously affected. It came up in a really conservative background. My dad's from Oklahoma and tough guy, fist fighter, uh very hard knuckled people, and came in during the Dust Bowl. They, I mean, if you think of Tom Joad. That's my family. They lost everything and had to come out here. Uh, but the so my conservative uh, foundation was right in place. My dad would put me in my place, right in the middle of church. You know, I mean, I could be launched right out of that seat for, you know, um, you know for, for for whatever you know. And then you uh, know, so you know when you you know you drink the blood of Christ, it was that grape juice, and you know, I loved. Pretending it was whiskey after church was over because they had those like little glasses <laughs> right. that you'd see that you'd see uh, in the in the cowboy movies. And I'd like to just knock it back. And boy, I I'll tell you, my dad was just a no nonsense guy about that. But, you know, I also grew up with music in the Baptist church. And so that was a real uh uh first love of mine music. my grandmother you know uh, taught the piano, my mom was in the choir his her sister was in the choir, so I grew up with music was in all the little little things we did, you know the Christmas play, so I liked singing, and eventually my I, you know, it was, uh, my mom made me take the piano lessons, you know, so I was trained classically on piano for about three and a half years.
0: Did you, did you always maintain that practice of music or did, is it something you've only revisited?
1: I revisited. I, I revisited in my twenties, uh, because I tell you, I was always staring out the window and I was taught to be a, 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 a I was taught by a teacher that wanted to train a concert pianist. So there was no boogie woogie. There was no, you know, it was all, I mean, the closest thing I got to rock was green sleeves. You know, everything else was, was the classics. And uh, and my mom, being in a conservative background, she goes, no, that's what the teacher wants. You don't step outside that line. And so after about three and a half years of staring out the windows, watching everybody play ball, which is what I do, I'm a sports guy, um, my mom really got tired of feeling that she had pinned me down to that chair. And she said to me, she said, you're going to be really sorry you gave this up because I was pretty good. I was able to transpose anything. So I I really could. I mean if if they would have let me play a little rock song and some little girl would have sat next to me, I probably never would have given it up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, no one wanted to sit next to me playing Mozart. So um so the music came out of the church. Uh my 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 I take my conservative outlook came in it. Also it also it also Probably what cl- clouded me, I was a late learner on things because I would adopt my parents' point of view. What was talked about at that kitchen table was mine. Vietnam was going on. If you were against the war, you were bad. If you had long hair, you were bad. Uh, my brother went into Marines. So if somebody hated the Marines, I hated them. Now, I was like 13 or 14. And so as I was moving into high school, I, I wasn't very evolved in a the sense. there's nobody who would say, no, just because somebody has long hair doesn't mean – they're dumb doesn't mean they're anti, you know, establishment, anti-America, but in fact, that's that's what I saw, and I had to really fight, really a long time, to grab onto my own ability to look at the world in a, in, a, in a more gray way.
0: Was there any experience or person who comes to mind early on who helped you develop that?
1: Hel- no, but I I can remember really being behind the curve a few times uh um you know because my parents would say hey look you got to be able to speak your mind you know in these circles whatever you need to do you got to you know you. but what i found was i was speaking my parents mind mm-hmm. and and i was not coming off very well in a way i was i was i was militant about things i didn't even know about and i began to sense that that i didn't have a a bigger view i had their view and, you know, it hasn't hurt me in my life to have a conservative view, but I'm not a very, I'm, uh, my eye, my eyes, the scales came off my eyes a long time ago about things.
0: So I'm going to jump around chronologically. a little yeah. bit, But, uh, but before we, we jump beyond high school. So in high school you were five, two, is that right?
1: Well, I was, I, I, I was a sophomore. I was 16 years old. And the reason I can say that is because, you know, when you get your license, the first thing people want to do is look at it, especially the girls, right? They want to look at your picture. And of course, I handed my picture over and, and then there it is, 87 pounds, five foot two, 16 years old. I was looking below the wheel of my Dotson pickup when I drove. I was itty bitty. Um, I began to, you know, grow in my senior year and, grow into college, but, uh, you know, I wasn't not a senior. I wasn't five, two, but that's was kind of, it was kind of humiliating after about the fourth or fifth girl said, Hey, you're, look at that. That's really cute. Five, two. And I took my license out. I never let anybody look at it again.
0: Did you, were you athletic? You mentioned the, the playing ball, uh, before you hit your growth spurt. So while, yeah,
1: yeah, ball. I was, I was, yeah, I, I, I was really, I played a lot and I played to the, until I had to come home when those streetlights came on. And of course I didn't. And and here come my father, dressed almost like I am right now, in blue jeans and blue shirt. He was a lineman for Edison. And when they were faded jeans, it wasn't because they were designer jeans. They were faded because they just got washed a billion, zillion times. And he was as handsome as Paul Newman, I got to tell you. And he'd he come looking for me, and I'd see that finger man, and I'd like be running across the street trying to get around him to get home. I just had... I just couldn't keep certain things in my head, you know.
0: And uh, you mean by that the um, the sports? Or? You
1: just I couldn't keep track. of It I was like any kid. Oh God! I it. just track said, of "Look, time. when you see those streetlights right. come on, you come home." Yeah. So you know, or when I'd go build a fort, you bring my tools back. Right. You know, or when you take your sports <laughs> stuff out, you don't leave your ball out. You know, right? The 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 hammer, the saw would be left at the fort. But my dad would go down to where I'm building a fort, and back would came the saw and it was all rusty Mm -hmm. you know he'd look at me and 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 i was like i was thinking man i'm I'm a bit of a fuck-up you know i'm i i just i i don't get it right you know it's like i know to bring it back but i'm having so much fun i was a classic 10 year old 12 year old just you have so much fun you almost can't Think of the consequences.
0: Well, I think that a lot of adults then spend the rest of their lives trying to recapture that feeling in a way. Well,
1: Mark Twain said it. You know, he said, "Look, if a man lived his life correctly, he's never forgotten his childhood. He's never given it up."
0: When you were uh, five two, you said eighty seven pounds.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Wow, wow, that is small. Did you? uh, I mean, were you a kind of a rough and tumble kid? Did you get? Yeah, I was really
1: rough and tumble. I mean, I remember they asked me to go out for the wrestling team because I could get my the varsity letter right you get a varsity letter and i said no i'm gonna be a basketball player because i'd always dreamed of you know doing the layups with you know the to the hawaii Five O theme because that's what i saw when i was a little kid i was a good athlete but i i said no i'm gonna be that and they go well you're not gonna make the varsity you know at 5-2 they go you could wrestle at 96 pounds right get your varsity letter and i thought I don't want that. But they go, well, just go try. So I went out and wrestled the one kid that was 96. I just threw him all over the place. He dragged all the I just – you know, I, get him in a, I didn't get him in any classic wrestling. I got him in a headlock and he whined. He was like whining. I wasn't going to let him up. I, I really dominated him. But I thought, big deal. I don't want my Letterman's jacket in this sport. And I, I want it in basketball. And I, my mom promised me I'd grow. I mean, I literally – was running around the house, jumping up and touching the header on every door, going "What in the hell?" Five two, cute. I can't be this. I can't. <laughs> and I'd say to my mom, which you do, you know, you go, "Mom, am I going to grow?" I swear to God, am I going to grow? And she goes, you're, "I promise you, you're going to."
0: <laughs> so, you know. And you, uh, I had read about a, um, I guess, a heart to heart that you had with your father at one point. Uh, I want to say in the bathtub, or you were in the bathtub. Am yeah, I getting this I, right? Could you describe that? Well, that, that, that exchange? My, You know, that
1: was uh, it, it was an. I, I had been working up in in Aspen. Uh, I have a ranch up there, and working very much like I work here. And um, and and it, it got to put a little bit of it into context too. A little bit. But it was, you know, my dad was a worker, and when he would try to teach us to work, it was like we'd mow the lawn and we'd be done. And at an early age, and he go, "Well, did you edge it?" And you go. Didn't edge it, right? So the next time we mowed it and edged it, he goes, did you wash it off? Didn't want, he was a bit of a taskmaster in a way. So it was very difficult to get it exactly right. Right. You know, a man does a job right. And a lot of that came from the dust bowl. Cause he used to, he saw when a hundred guys would be in line to dig the same ditch. And he used to say to me, he said, there'd be a hundred guys dig this thing if you don't dig it. So I understood that a guy had to work. That's what I was, was about. And, and, um, uh, I had a real big problem up on the property and they literally watched me solve it all day long. I never stopped working and at the end I was actually going underwater uh, and plugging something. You know, I mean I was like in that cold water up there and he watched me. This is and your your property. This is on my property. I was a, but it was a it, to be honest it was a typical day other than the fact that something broke and I really had to fix it. It was just was a he watched. He watched me work. And now the day was done, and I was up in, and I don't take baths for the most part, but I was up in my room, and I, I'm taking a bath, I'm, I'm really beat to shit. I'm really beat up. And the door opens, and my dad walks in. So imagine, he can go, what the, <laughs> the hell is going on this? here? And he walks in, and he and I'm in the bathtub, and I don't know what i I'm not going to sink down, but I'm thinking maybe, I, I don't know what it is. and and he And, and kind of like a dog who can't find a place to stand, he kind of, Walks a little bit in a circle and finally puts his arm on the on the hearth or up on the mantle. And I say that because when I designed this house, I always wanted a fireplace in the bathroom. Yeah. I always wanted to get out and Sounds amazing. And have the fireplace in the bed. So he had his on the mantle. And so I'm, I'm like, look at him, yeah. And he starts to talk to me. He says, you know, when you were young, you had all the things you wanted, right? Uh, and I go, yeah, of course I did. He goes, and you never felt like you There was anything we didn't provide money. He started going down this trail of, of. Did we have enough? Did were you, you know? And, and he looked at me, because he was always so worried that I would go into acting. He thought, you know, a guy should work, work. And I know he was unsure. And then he was able to see the success that I had, and, and so I think I wonder if he was thinking at some point. I hope I never derailed you, but. Nevertheless, he's going down this path. You had what you wanted. You, your mom and I did the best we could. And he looked at me and he said, "You know, I never took a chance in my life." And I was almost in my own field of dreams moment. And 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 it's like there was like some tears coming down. And he goes, "You know, I I hope you know." He goes, "I came out of that goddamn fucking dust bowl, and I just when I got a job, Kevin, I didn't want to lose it." I was going to hold on to that because I knew there'd always be food on the table. And I said, there was, there was, I mean, and there was a really kind of just an amazing moment. My dad sitting there going, and I'd long since been able to take care of myself. I didn't need gas money from him when I'd go visit him. And it was just a, you know, you know, I don't know if you ever had a moment like that, but I, I had that. And, and uh, you know, I didn't want him to tear up. He'd given me everything that he could give me. And it was just one of those moments. And, um, you know, I won't, you know, I'll always remember that.
0: Has, uh,
1: they just want to know that they did right by you. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you, uh, as a father yourself, do you, uh, has that mentality carried over to you as well? Were you, you, are you ever, well, I
1: probably talked to my kids a little bit more than he talked to me. And I probably maybe even a little bit easier on them than he was on me. Uh, you know, man, he was tapping me on the shoulder in the morning and said, we're, here we go, we're going to work. I don't really do that to mine. I, I let them see me work. they' you know I you know they can come work side by side, but I I I don't know who's right. I don't know if he's right. I don't know if I'm right. You don't know till the till the end. I I do know that early on, my dad thought, "You're lazy." He'd say that to me. "You're lazy. You're not going." And I and I just I work more than anybody I know. Um, You know, I mean, and maybe I have that in my head. You know, it's not it's not uncommon for me when I come out with the guys that are working on the property. I'm here before they are, and I work with them all day, right next to them. In fact the ones who don't even speak English go is he going to be here all day? <laughs> and and the other ones go I think so. And then and then later on they go I thought he was in the movies. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't need to do that. And uh and they, somebody says hey Hefe he likes it. You know, he likes to be out here. So um it my own children you know I tell my children I love them every day. That's what I tell them. But I and I tell them they're special every day, but I always finish that sentence with "It doesn't make you better." Mm. Okay, it doesn't make you better being special because people out there, their sons or daughters, they're special. You can feel special yourself, but even if you do something that the world acknowledges, you got to be re- you got to really relax because it doesn't make you better than anybody. Mm-hmm. And I and I need what they need to learn in life is different than what I do. I never was in a limousine till I was 28 years old. They ridden in limousines, going with us wherever we go since they were, you know, in diapers. So their lessons are going to be different. And and part of what I anticipate for them is to be able to share their good luck. Mm -hmm. How are they going to share their good luck? How are they going to have a sense of balance? You know, Uh, and, uh, you know, there's no book on that. But it's something I think about it and work at every
0: day. So I have a a friend who is who's also on the podcast uh named chris Saka, very uh very very successful venture capitalist and when he was growing up and he does this with his kids now, his parents would put him through what he called the the sweet and sour summers so he would have some fun experience that his parents would expose him to but then the sour was they they would be required to go do not a thankless job but a hard manual job like cleaning uh making this up like Oil refinery equipment with with some taskmaster that you mm-hmm. know, dad or mom had had decided right. that for them to spend time with to give them both perspectives. Uh, do you uh, what what is the uh, what are the jobs the hardest jobs that have taught you the most?
1: Well, my dad was the hardest on me. You couldn't be harder than my dad. So um, you know maybe that put me in a position to to work. I. I my dad said if you can outwork if you can stay long, if you can you'll you just have to outwork someone. Mm-hmm. And uh it was really very, very basic. So um you know my own outlook for my own kids is they see that I'll work side by side with somebody. There's no difference between who I'm working with.
0: Is there anything when you were uh and, and we're gonna come back to actually this is a good time to sort of shift gears a little bit with um uh, Acting, talking about acting, and that entire career, can you talk a little bit about uh, your experience with Stiltskin?
1: Yeah, well, that was a um, it was a moment in my life. I was in my, I think I was in my senior year at college, um, the start of it, and I was in night school. And if you know anything about night school, you know that the people are in night school are really serious. So the bell graphs really hard there, you know, as opposed to a bunch of eighteen year olds, you know, or whatever you are. If you're in night school, it's serious. Those dudes are all drinking coffee. They're all still in their suits. They're all, and I'm in accounting class and it's not happening for me. I know I'm not supposed to be there. I know where I'm at. I'm not, I'm at the other end. I'm at the wrong end of what was going to happen when a test is taken because I don't like it. But, again, because of my conservative background, you graduate high school, you go to college, and you get a college degree, and you get a job. I wasn't really, again, very advanced in my thinking or my eyes weren't open to the real possibilities. I mean, the greatest things I did was when I would go drive trucks or frame houses or I worked on commercial fishing boats. I like that work. I like the exoticness of that life or the you get what you get because that's what you just earned. Right. And so academia was not a thing for me. And there I was smack di- smack in the middle of it and realizing that I was just like tr- pulling sand down. I couldn't get out of this hole, but I saw I, what do I do? I turn off to the teacher. I open up the little student newspaper and I'm w- winging through the newspaper, which is all of three pages long at a college. Right. And on the back of it was a, 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 a play, uh, an audition for a thing called Rumpelstiltskin on an off campus area. And don't, I don't know why, I just thought, audition, I'd like to try that. And, um, you know, when I closed that newspaper, I listened to the person drone on, I saw the latest pop quiz, and I was last. And um, But what I knew at that moment, I was going to that audition the next day. I was excited about the next day. It's been a long time in my college life where I was excited about the next day. And I took a, I, I, I drove down... I almost was killed literally doing it. I was going down the 55 freeway, which is in Orange County, and at that time the freeway hadn't been finished all the way. So stoplights were on the freeway at a certain point, like where they were going to build. That sounds
0: so dangerous. And as
1: I'm going down there, everything's fine. That's not a big problem, And except my accelerator broke and went to the floor. On this old and pickup. And all of a sudden, I saw the brake lights up ahead, like where those eucalyptus trees are way out there.
0: Yeah, a couple hundred brake, feet from bra-
1: Brake lights. And my speedometer's going from 60 to 70 to 80, and it's not slowing down. And I'm probably going to hit those people at about 90 miles an hour and kill them, kill myself. And I'm just – and the engine is just – it was – I don't know why it was designed that way, but the floor, like some ghost, pulled it straight down to the bottom. So I had my wits about me at one point halfway through when I realized I didn't want to die, and I threw the clutch in. And there was never such a terrible whine, but I thought, oh, my God, it, it did engage, but the engine was revving. I was able to turn the key off, and I coasted to a stop, pulled over into the emergency lane, didn't kill anybody. I jumped out of that fucking car. Hopped over that fence and hitchhiked to my audition (laughs) because I wasn't going to miss it. Wow. I left it on the freeway. I left it because I had some place I wanted to be. I had a place that something was going to happen. And, of course, nothing did. I wasn't good enough. I didn't have enough skill. I didn't really know about Rumpelstiltskin. I mean, I didn't know my fairy tales. Okay, I, I figured there was a prince. I would just leave it at that. <laughs> I'll go out for the prince, maybe. You know, I had to, you know, you know, and but I didn't get it. But my imagination started to burn about the possibilities.
0: And what uh, when you had those possibilities then in your head? What were the the next steps? I mean, the what-
1: next steps were to. The reason I didn't get the part, because I wasn't very good, I could tell the people, like in accounting, they were better than me. They were better than me. But I thought the difference was I didn't want to try to improve in accounting. But in acting, I thought, I'm going to go to school. I found something I think I want to learn. And so it was one night they started to have classes there. One night a week turned into two nights a week, turned into three, turned into four. I suddenly started to become the student that i wasn't in college Hmm. i went to ucla and took two classes in film financing film budgeting Uh, i showed up for the first day of class i had already read the book the entire book i wasn't in the mood to do an all-nighter i was interested
0: so at this point you'd you'd graduated from college at this point
1: i graduated from college Uh, i was framing houses out in orange county i would go and that's how i would make my dollars i I wasn't very good, but I could work all day. If you could frame one house by yourself a day, you could get another house. But what guys were doing that were really experienced in eight hours, I was doing in twelve. So I was usually out there. And I think about this time of year because the sun goes down quickly. Guys are going home at three thirty. Sometimes they'd work in teams. Some guys could frame a house by themselves. I'd do it by myself. But I wasn't finished at three thirty. I wasn't finished at five, and I had that pickup truck. The same one almost killed me. Um, I'd have the lights out, and I would frame with the lights on till I was done, so I could get a house the next day.
0: And the classes you took the classes during uh, during the day or no at, at night? night? Those are at night. Then I would
1: go. Then I would go at night, and. Um, I was all we can say without, you know, beating this to death in a way or boring anybody with it. It was just suddenly uh, suddenly I was interested. I was interested in my own life the way I used to be interested in it when I was a kid, when everything when the, tomorrow was exceptional. And for me, every day was exceptional when I actually realized I wanted now I wasn't telling people what I wanted to do because half of me was going, well, who's going to believe this? Especially my dad. How, so let's see. How old were you at the time? I guess so. You're let's thinking. say I'm. Let's say I'm probably twenty. Yeah, twenty-one. You know, and you know, in in my mind, I thought, why? How come at twenty-one, I don't know what I want to be? You know, I, there's this kind of thing. I thought I was actually getting old. I don't know what I want to do. Um, seemed like everybody else did. Um, I didn't have anybody to tell me to relax. Just just keep moving. You're doing fine. You know, a lot of what I got was, "What are you going to do?" Yeah, and so I just like the rat in the maze going after the cheese. I just kept going to class, kept going. I was going to graduate with a degree that I didn't care. Mm-hmm. You know, I did care about the acting, and I st- started, I I started to fall in love with something. Didn't know if I was going to be able to make a living at it, but I finally got rid of the got rid of the whispers in my head, which was, what are you going to be? And I thought, it's none of your business. I'm going to be what I want to be. I, I, I finally shook lo- loose of, I guess, my parents. I and mean, this is not a session about therapy, but I finally got rid of the whispers. It didn't matter. I knew, I somehow figured out, if I didn't make myself happy, I would never be happy. If I didn't, you know, if I didn't pursue what was was whispering to me, I would absolutely be a failure. I would absolutely be an unhappy person, and believe me, when I could articulate that, which maybe many people could, I couldn't, but when I articulated that I didn't care anymore what anybody thought about what I did except me, all the weight of the world came off my shoulders, and everything became possible. It shifted to everybody else that they were now worried, now they're worried but it didn't shift everything for me. It shifted to a place where I felt free.
0: The, how did the chill come to be
1: that can experience? Yeah. Well, that was a, um, it was the one part that Lawrence Kasdan could cast without permission from the studio. Um, uh, he'd, you know, already done body heat and people recognize it. it was a special, special talent. And uh, a casting director named Wally Nasita, who was a very tough casting director, a no-nonsense kind of person who really, really actually helped her directors instead of she – would, she would offer up people that she thought. She put me up in front of him saying that she was – I was somebody that she thought was very good. And uh, I was lucky enough to get the big chill and uh, – I knew immediately that my life would change as a result of that movie. And a lot of people talk about, well, you're cut out, you know, then, you know, were you disappointed? I, I guess I had a small measure of disappointment, but none to the grit, not, not anything like what I think people sh- thought I should have. Um, because I realized at the moment that I was hired that somehow I was on my own yellow brick road. And that appearing in that movie wasn't nearly as a, as important as being in it. I knew I was in it. The people I was around knew I was in it. I had suddenly found my footing that had probably taken uh, from the point of, um, you know, that accounting class, uh, probably taken six years, seven years. You know, people talk about entrepreneurs, you know, and the idea of being an entrepreneur is, is – uh, being willing to do a job that nobody else wants to do uh, to be able to live the rest of your life doing whatever you want to do. And so the idea how I can correlate that a little bit would be to, to try to be an actor when you don't, there's no guarantee that it's ever going to work for you, but that you're willing to really work at it for a long time. When all the other responsibilities that to you at being married, trying to provide, but still not giving up on your dream, it, 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 it sustained me. I I I I was able to, I was lucky. I was able to make it. And when I got to that point, uh, I was a better actor. Um, I would not have been a good, a better, I would, even though I made a check and everybody had been really happy, I wouldn't have had the foundation. I had to re-educate myself. And I love the idea of educating myself.
0: How, what did the, over that course of six or seven years before uh, before uh, you were cast for The Chill, what did you say to yourself to keep yourself going?
1: Well, there's, it's hard because you, if, you, if you want to be practical, and you need to be, it's, already, it's very difficult to be around people that don't see themselves clearly. So when your parents tell you you're the fastest little runner, you believe that. But, you know, by the time you get to the sixth grade, there's people blowing by you, and and your chances of being in the Olympics, they're not good. And so somebody says, well, I'm going to make it anyway. okay that's a hard person to be around a little bit, Um, but you know, in in the world of acting, you, you, you have to say, you have to think where you would fit. So I was looking out at the landscape, obviously, I was going to class at night, doing everything I would do, and you know, you know, hating everybody I saw or being around other actors who I realized hated everybody on television that had parts. I mean, there's like bitterness I among mean, actors, bitterness among actors who don't have jobs looking out there and the people that do or whatever. And I was like, I didn't really feel that, but I, I could understand that. But as I was moving along, I, there was a moment in time where I actually thought I wasn't going to make it. I, I did. And, I, and one thing I did once I decided that I'd become an actor is I didn't want to put a clock on, I was going to ask you that. Put a yeah. clock on things, so I, I didn't. But I was also a practical person. I mean, look at me. I can, you know, I know what time it is, and I'm starting to think, you know what, it, the the people I'm supposedly going to be going up against are getting more parts. I was going up against Sean Penn and Nicolas Cage, and and and. And Ken Wall and and uh, Mel Gibson and Richard Gere and you can think of all the people that were already on the landscape when I actually decided that I would act. So they not only had those credits going for them before I started. Some of them, you know, they they had you know twenty films behind them, and so these were the parts. This this was the category that I was in, and so if I would go up for a part, there'd be four or five of these names being thrown around, and they would just work their way right down and. Suddenly, and so my chances of getting those parts weren't very good. But somewhere along the line, they started using me on certain movies. Going well, if you want too much money, we're going to go with this unknown guy. Well, who's this unknown guy? Kevin. And that I I, I was a bit of a stalking horse for some you know for some people you know to either. Take less money, or we're going to give this good part away
0: by stalking, or you mean like a bargaining ship, or a, like a plan, we'll go like with this unknown. Money, I see.
1: We'll go with this unknown. They continue to go with the known. So I actually thought, you know what, I'm not going to be able to jump over these guys, Timothy Hutton. You can just go right down the list. But then the big chill happened for me. And, you know, I was working as a stage manager at, at Raleigh Studios and for three years, and I would be taking cable and working late, late, late at night, and I didn't tell a lot of people that I acted because nobody wants to be around a pining actor, so I just didn't say it. But what happened was all of a sudden when I did start to emerge, Big Chill moved to Fandango, moved to American Flyers, moved to Silverado, suddenly it seemed like it was happening very fast for some people – It's like, what, what, where, where did this come from? And then when I decided I would direct, which was about two pictures later, people thought, wow, he's moving really, really fast. You know, what they didn't know was I had been dreaming this moment for six, seven years before that. Then when it was starting to happen, I had already been planning for these things. So what was fast for other people wasn't fast for me.
0: Well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you hit a certain escape velocity in a sense, and then, or uh, you'd use maybe a different metaphor. I mean, you got, you'd been cranking and cranking, and got to the top of the roller coaster, but you'd been sort of thinking of that descent all along. Uh, the, I've heard you say that the, the big struggle in acting is staying loose. If, if you were to have the opportunity to go back to yourself, say, uh, at the Silverado, uh, point, what advice acting advice or otherwise would you have given yourself?
1: Well, um, I just wanted, I, I tell you that I, I i would give myself almost the same advice as, as I did, which was I'm going to try to hold out for the good movies. I'm not going to just try to go to movie after movie. You know, maybe what I should have given myself, is, which is be really ready to do the sequels. <laughs> 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 At 30, I would say, just be prepared to do Bull Durham 2, Tin Cup 2, you know, uh, Bodyguard 2. Get get in the mode of, of making these movies later on.
0: Uh, what, uh, what are some of the scenes that have scared you the most? And uh, I've heard you talk about after you've read a script and uh, sort of picked up on the secret, right? Something you can't wait to hopefully portray or share with an audience or tell in a certain way. Uh, what are what are some of the scenes that come to mind that you were most scared of in any any film that comes to mind?
1: Well, I'm usually scared of the scenes I, if if I if there's number one, there's got to be a scene in there that you really want to do, you think you can do, that you really really want to say, that you want to be known. Uh, for, uh, I guess. Listen, I remember seeing you know Spencer Tracy and in Inherit the Wind, and you know, and and. um and and watching Gregory Peck and you know you know to kill a mockingbird stand up you know there's your father's walk you know what I mean and I thought to myself I mean I loved McQueen and I loved Newman and they were minimalist and so I understood how to work with a lot of economy I knew I would do westerns. But I was never afraid of language either. So I wasn't, you know, I remember, you know, I'd read a lot about McQueen and something. It's like just always ripping lines out, ripping lines. Didn't, you know, have any, any elongated anything. It was just not going to happen. Me, I wanted to have the inherit the win speeches. I wanted to have those things. And I've been able to have four or five of those in my career. You know, had one with, uh, black or white in the courtroom. Um, The problem is when you see them written so well. You know the thing in Bull Durham. You know I believe is is that you realize you're also the person that can mess them up, right? right? You're also the person that can miss take a big whiff at something that was so great. And so I usually know when I'm onto something, which is when I'm a little bit afraid of it. Go wow! I could I could mess this up. And I I put myself there. You know, a lot of times in my life, and I've often asked myself, you know, um, why have I tried so hard to be in a place where I could fail so badly in front of so many? And, you know, I have, you know, gone to bed at night knowing the next day I have to deliver. And if I don't, everybody else is going to know.
0: I. uh, I'm recalling uh, a commencement speech that was given by one of my favorite writers, Neil Gaiman. An amazing fiction writer and uh it's called make good art but at one point he says you know when you feel like and i'm paraphrasing here you're walking down the the street naked extremely uncomfortable about what you're about to say then you might just be getting it right along those lines uh the when you're tackling a scene you know like the i believe say in bill durham uh how do you prepare for that? How do you practice beforehand or how do you
1: Well, you know, I never thought that I did that scene as well as it could have been done. I, I was, it was the writing there was so great. I just did the best I could. Um, um, and I had a great director and Ron Shelton and I, and launched me in another movie called 10 cup. But you know, how do you prepare? Like, let's take the, let's take the scene in, um, JFK. um, which was about 11 pages long, you know, um, it was a really (laughs) intense thing. And I, I started on that probably uh, a month and a half, two months before we ever started filming. I'm really slow. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a, I can memorize, I think as well as anybody, but I can't perform with memory. I have to perform when, when I actually own the words and I can do them in any, you know, in any state, And so to do that, I know that I have to get off book, which is a term for, you know, I don't need the script anymore. Um, I do that before every movie. I'm off book. I I don't trust myself um, to learn lines the week of, the night of. I just don't do it. And um, it's kind of anal. But for me. It makes me more prepared to step through what I call a window of opportunity if one presents itself on this on the set that day. you know a lot of people they come they go no, I'll just wing it i I like being fresh, I like being you know you know open to the spontaneity. I would never trust the work that I do to that, and I would never um i couldn't I couldn't do that to a movie I was working on. I wouldn't trust myself. I think going in really prepared makes me really confident to do anything that happens that day uh i'm not just stuck there i'm just prepared to do that
0: well it seems also that your familiarity with the material allows you to make some very intelligent suggestions uh you brought up jfk i mean the let us suppose maybe you could explain the conversation with with oliver stone (laughs)
1: we did you know oliver comes under a lot of scrutiny. you know, he really is has a really active mind uh, and uh, is really, you know, uh, a patriot in his own way after a, a, a truth, and and he's willing to go at it very, very hard, and people have, um, have questioned him on it, and uh, the directions he goes down, the roads he'll, the rabbit holes he's willing to go down, and what gets said and who said it, and uh, I knew I was going to be the voice of all this, and... Um, as I was going through that script, I wanted to serve Oliver, but I also wanted to serve myself a little bit, too, which was um, to make sure that I wasn't so far out on the limb saying explicitly, you know, what Oliver is saying. And when I came to certain things that I was unsure about and some other people questioned it a little bit, I said to Oliver, I go, I'm not comfortable with saying this. I said, um, uh, I would be more comfortable saying "let us suppose" as opposed to "this actually happened," because the "let us suppose" is 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 framing things for people to see. Because if there's no actual eyewitness there, you go "let us suppose this happened," you know. Um, and Oliver didn't fight that at all. To his credit, he said, "That's fine." Let's just paint that picture because that's the picture I believe that's there, um, you know, because you could turn and say, and now let us suppose that didn't happen. Boom. And you go down that thing. And I thought it was a fair depiction. And uh and I was I was I was proud of Oliver instead of fighting that. No, we're going to say that's fact. It is fact because this guy said it was. And and I said, well, let's just think about that a little bit. It was a good collaboration.
0: Uh, you mentioned something uh, that Oliver I hope he doesn't burn himself up. What did you mean when you said said what? I hope he doesn't burn himself up. I hope he hears this. Uh,
1: I don't know where I said that, but that's just, that's just one friend to another one colleague to another. And, and listen, you know, we all burn pretty hot and bright and, and, and go pretty hard. And I, you know, I don't need to let people know anything more than that. Other than, than uh, you know, this is a guy that was good to me. Um, and, uh, I know he plays hard and I know he works really hard and, and, uh, I want to see him have as long a life as he possibly can and do the work that means a lot to him. So I just, I'll just kind of let
0: it go at that. And the reason, the reason I ask is I mean, quite frankly because I think that, uh, it's out of personal interest. I mean, you've had a very long career, and you've lasted. Uh, I feel like I burn the candle at both ends quite often, with, particularly when I get immersed in a creative project and and can't kind of pull back to thirty thousand feet. Have you? Do you feel like you've ever been at risk of of burning out? I mean, you've had some, for instance. I mean, Waterworld, massively long shoot, right? Uh, what do you do? Or how have you contended with that if you've had to?
1: Just yeah, well, you know, I was also going through a divorce, which was something that I didn't see happening to me, you know, kind of from a conservative point of view, how you're raised that you think, well, this is how it's going to be the rest of your life. And you kind of know even before that, that it wasn't really working that way. But but all the planets lined up with this incredibly long movie, a very tough thing. And I actually went through that entire movie um, um divorced uh um, separated and then, di- and then divorced before the movie started uh, people don't know that they happen to think that somewhere halfway through that um that that happened it didn't I was going to work every day with with um you know feeling a bit like a failure the but you know to me you know I just go back you just you put your head down you keep working and you keep doing the very best you can and you don't let the people know around you that your heart's on the ground. Um, but, um, you know, my life is so much more than acting. Um, so I've never, uh, you know, I I stop sometimes because I just want to stop, not because I have to stop. Please, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, I remember in college when we do like black beauties, you just be up all night, you know, just somebody needs to come in and stop me, you know what I mean? And I, I didn't have that. I have my own governor. Uh, and I have my own energy level, which might not be the same as somebody else who's think, I think you need to slow down. I, I kind of know when I need to. Got it. You have some type of limiter. That yeah. And I have other interests that actually almost force that. Right. You know, I have my own seasons as a man, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I got to go hunting. I got to go fishing. I got to go be with I got to be back for little league. I got to you know, I have yeah. these things that are important to me and important to my family.
0: This is a bit of a non sequitur, but I'm so curious because I've spent just a little bit of time in Aspen uh, doing some work with the Aspen Institute, and uh, I bumped into somebody at one point, and they're like, "You know what? I actually bumped into, and this could be total, uh, total, totally false, but they're like, I walked into this bar in Aspen, and Kevin Costner was bartending. Have you ever bartended in a bar in Aspen or anything like, like even as a uh, like a just to, uh, I I have friends at bartend. Maybe
1: I jump back to help them for a second. <laughs> okay, but I don't. I I haven't. So, you know, so. I don't. I don't know how to make change. You know, yeah. <laughs> my nightmare is when something costs eight dollars. You know, and 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 then, and they you know, or something, and I give them a certain amount of money and the guy goes can you give me 10 more cents or something like that you know and i go no i'm only giving
0: you you know <laughs> i think like ptsd after accounting class yeah
1: yeah it was like it's like please don't do that to me that the my that my temples start to pound and it's like hey man why are you asking for more money or something cuz you want to make life easier I me mean, you're not you're humiliating me stop <laughs> I just Uh, like, I literally kind of throw the money down on the counter and just like walk out. (laughs) It's like some (laughs) reflex, like, don't have me do math at the chalkboard. (laughs) Yeah. I I had this little creep in, um, I was in fourth grade and um, you know how sometimes the teachers will tell you, hey, the, the fifth grade teacher needs you to take this note over, right? Well, if I look back in my life, I've got a very, very sound life, but if I really look back at it, I do have moments where... Um, you, know, you know, you know I have real problems as a result of certain things. You just don't realize it. And I remember I would go to this so I'd go to the fifth grade class, and it was this little prick. Uh, his name was Mr. Chapman. And he was short and he had a flat top like a like a marine, a flat top. And he wore a bow tie. All right. So you know he (laughs) sounds like a handful already. Prick already, right? (laughs) And so I walked in and, and I brought the paper and he goes, What are you doing in class? And I go, Oh, we're doing clay or something. He goes, Well, we're doing math here. You know, we're doing You know, whatever kind of math. Oh, that's really great. He goes, why don't you show us the math you know how to do? Oh, God. Can you believe that? This guy would do this to a fourth grader, and he would have me try to do their math. And he laughed at me.
0: Oh, what a mess.
1: And the kids laughed. Yeah. And I remember that teacher told me another time, can you take this over to Mr. Chapman? I go, no, no. And, And she said... Look, you just have to do this for whatever reason. I wasn't able to say no to her either. Again, maybe that's a conservative background. Into that class, I went. Chapman, this little, this little f- prick, did the same thing again. He humiliated me and he allowed his fifth graders to laugh at me. Ugh. And I believe it or not, I could never go to the chalkboard again without that, that, um, fear of being laughed at. So the truth was I could go, I could go to the gas station now and give the guy the money and he goes, give me an extra dime and I'll make this even on you. And that's the chalkboard to me. It's the chalkboard. And um that guy was cruel. That guy shouldn't have been a teacher. Somebody should have jerked him on his ass. And so you don't talk to anybody like that. You don't humiliate anybody, let alone a kid lower grade coming into your class just to give you something. There was something really wrong with him. I probably conjured that story up for the first time probably about 10 years ago telling somebody about it And because I always wondered why everything would go into a fog with me when I would go up to the chalkboard. I couldn't follow the directions that anybody was saying to me. They go, this is really simple. It wasn't simple to me. Why? Because I couldn't
0: hear it. My brain was pounding. That's uh, horrible. I mean, it's it's incredible how just even I mean that sounds very sadistic. Um, It's wrong, you
1: know. I mean, I've I've got this life, you know, where I have this fame, worldwide fame. Somebody's listening, probably going, Jesus Christ! This this, you know. We listen. We're all we're all bruised in this world. Yeah, we've all been kind of, you know, that wasn't you know not the kind of abusive home. Thank God, you know, wasn't you know. Somebody said, Hey, gee, Kev, that's pretty mild. I would agree with you. But nevertheless, you realize if you take that and see how it affected me and then maybe add on heaps of
0: the stuff that happens to other children, my God, we we really can ruin people. And it could just be an off-the-cuff remark. I mean, I remember my, uh, my mom, for instance, at one point was uh, in a music class, I think it was, singing, and the teacher said, yeah you should just stop singing or it was some like off the cuff remark. Maybe that teacher was just having a bad day, whatever it was. But my mom has carried that throughout her entire life. Exactly. Like, that she can't sing or she shouldn't sing. And uh, I had a similar experience with a math teacher in high school, just was constantly kind of heckled or, or needled in this class. And so my choice of college was partly determined by where I wouldn't have a math requirement.
1: Right. <laughs> and, no, I, I tell you, you know, and so we understand how we affect people. And that's followed me with my whatever fame I carry around the world that I know I come into contact with people. And there's a moment that I can have an impact on them. Mm-hmm. It's very with me.
0: How did, how have you learned to contend with, I mean, for instance, and I mean, I this is just in my small like startup world space, but I'll have people who like come up to me, I'm at a urinal and they'll come up and want to like pitch a startup behind my head at a urinal. How have you learned to contend? Because it must be difficult for you to go out to a lot of public places, I would imagine. I go anywhere I want. I tell you the problem, you know,
1: I because I never wanted my kids to be limited. Oh, daddy can't go here because daddy's too famous. I tell you where I, I can't go very well is to the bars because there's alcohol. When there's alcohol, people get loose. They get too free. They say things, and under the guise of it, or whatever and a and a girl will say something, and somebody will say so that's not a good place for me um to be honest and i'm not a drinker, so it's not a it's not really a loss for me The other place that's more difficult is like Disneyland, where people think you're part of the ride, <laughs> but I go to both places, regardless because if my friends are there, i'll go, mm-hmm. and i'll make sure that my kids go to disneyland i I have determined to not let fame affect them. Uh,
0: so you mentioned you have many different interests. One I'd like to touch on before we talk about some more recent projects is directing uh, and specifically uh, Dances with Wolves, which is one of my favorite movies of all time uh, as, a, as a side note. But um, could you describe uh, how that got started in your interactions with Michael Blake?
1: Yeah, you mean the the story of it being written, the whole thing? Uh,
0: Well, specifically, what I was thinking of is um, sort of how Dances with Wolves started up on a wall.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, Michael, and we've lost Michael. Michael passed away. Um, Michael was a real total child of the 60s. He, um, you know, he he would be he was on the newspaper staff you know he was like he was against the establishment he was with Jane Fonda just imagine everything berkeley the long hair the whole thing and but michael was really after the truth and but then michael got to a point where he wanted you know as we moved into the 70s and you know wanted to write screenplays wanted to write books he did write books but he really wanted to write screenplays and that's how we met and uh, in a little downtown off the LA River near the Coors well the Coors plant used to be down there, and there was this chemical plant and that's where Michael slept and we you know uh, we met and there was an acting group that none of us had to pay any money and it was a very eclectic group of people, a lot of rock and roll people, a lot of uh, screenwriters people wanted to direct people wanted to produce and so we we could all do what we wanted to do every night, which was act and which was hear our own writing and at one point, the big chill thing happened, and I started to emerge. So I was the one person in the group that started to emerge, and things started to go well for me. And so I was quickly dragging along my friends, if I could, to get them interviews, and Michael was one of those. And... um I got Michael eight or nine interviews that I could never get when I was struggling, and, and every one of them went south. Every one of them, the, I'd get a phone call. Michael insulted us. Michael told us, we don't know what we're doing. You don't know good writing. And so those calls were getting very difficult for me because I was trying to help him. And, and pretty soon, some of the people I was sending him to were actually as good a friend to me as he was. And so now he insulted them. And so I was losing patience with him and, and losing patience with him really putting down Hollywood and everything and putting this down. And and somewhere along the line, I mean, I'm shortchanging this because I don't want to bore the audience, but he really crossed the line with me and said something about some people and about this, and 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 I kind of was letting him know, Mike, maybe the writing's not good enough right now. I just get this, and then he said one more thing, and the next thing you know, I had my hands on him, and I had him up against the wall. He had really crossed the line with me. And basically what I said, I said, well, then quit – I said, quit pretending you want to be in Hollywood because everything you're writing is ending on page 120, which is code for screenplays, about 120 pages. And I said, why don't you start writing things that mean something, like a short story or a long story, something that ends on 88 or 188 or 888, and quit trying to write these. And I literally had him off the ground, and there was scripts under his feet, and I kicked them, and they went dramatically sliding like a deck of cards out there, and now I let him down. And I just, I said, why don't you quit pretending this thing you want to be and you actually hate i thought really our relationship was over there because i'd put my hands on him and that would be hard for me to come back from and um but you know michael three weeks later says to me typical writer he goes i don't have any place to live <laughs> and so i said well all right come live at my house and i uh, and he start and, and every night i would come he goes i'm writing something and he goes you want to hear it and i go no and every night, he goes, you know, I'm right. Can I read whatever? I said, no. Why did you say no? Because I was sick of him. I was, oh, I'd, I'd almost enough. beat him up. <laughs> yeah. And so now I'm having to look at him, have cereal in my house and everything in the morning and at night. And he, I got one spare bedroom of a house I bought. And my wife's even beginning to wonder about him. And she's saying to me after two months, hey, he's down there reading to our kids in his underwear. <laughs> So my kids are like five years old. They can't understand this stories reading. And I said, Michael's fine. There's nothing going on down. She goes, well, I'm not so fine with it after about two months. <laughs> so I say, Mike, you're going to have to go finally. So Mike goes and spends a, a little bit of time at another one of my friends for about three weeks. And now he's done. And he gives me this manuscript. And I... I said, "I'm." Uh, he goes. I said, "He goes." I hope you read. It. I go. I'm not sure I'm going to. I was pissed at this guy, but I. Let, but I'm also a softy, right? I let him live with me, and uh, I just didn't want anything to do with him for a while. He was so, bugged me so much, and so he split. He went down to Bisbee, Arizona, and worked at a Chinese restaurant, washing dishes at night, and then killing raccoons in the day at this ranch. And he would <laughs> call me up and say, "Did you read my thing?" I said, "No, no." And this went on for about three weeks. Then I get a letter. He goes, I'm cold. And I said, ah. And so I'd send him down sleeping bags and some Coleman stoves. I send him some stuff. And he goes, did you read my thing? I go, no. One night, I pick it up about four months later, five months later. And I start reading. And I read it all that night. It was Dances with Wolves. And I was really proud of him. I was really, really proud with him. Because when you live in this town, there's people always giving you things, giving you their last Best work. This is my best work. And so you're honored to be able to read somebody's thing, but you're also in the position of tr- having to turn around and tell them if you like it or not. And that can really take the air out of somebody. So unbelievably, Michael, without I, I was right not to try to listen to any of his stuff. I didn't want to edit any of his stuff. I didn't want to influence it. I wanted him to go till he was done. And it just took me you know six months to read it. And it was dancers. And I was really proud. And I, I called him up. I said, I'm going to make this in a movie. I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Because I didn't have that kind of money. I said, but I'm going to do it. And you're going to write the screenplay. And I'm going to pay you more than you've ever been paid. I'm going to find out what the Writers Guild is instead of working for $3,000 for all these goombas in town writing, you know, low budget films. I said, I'm going to find out. It was like, I don't know what it was, $27,000. And I went and figured out how to get $27,000 and paid Michael. I said let's do this and and um you know we made that movie about t- 2 years later and Mike won
0: the Oscar. It's uh, it's such a fine movie. Was it originally titled Dances with Wolves? Yeah. It was right from the beginning. Yeah. Uh how long did he give it to you in
1: basically novel form or what? It was all written out in manuscript. It was about as thick as a phone bit, phone book. But when you, when you mashed it down, it was, you know, I don't know what it was, 200 pages. I'm not sure.
0: And how, how did you end up directing that movie? Was it your intent?
1: Well, I actually yeah. went out to three really important directors. I'm not going to use their names. I know that would be interesting. But they were the top of the heap guys. And all of them had uh, things that they wouldn't do to the movie. Some would get rid of the opening Civil War sequence. Some thought it was just too long. Some somebody thought that probably it shouldn't be a white girl. That that seemed like a cliche. And I said, well, it really wasn't on the frontier. What what people were traded. There was a lot of that going on. Um, and so once I got past them, I thought to myself, you know, I think I should direct this. I, and I'll probably, you know, going back to our earlier in our discussion where you talked about, were you ever afraid? I was, I really had a good script. I knew it. I worked with Mike. In fact, Mike said, man, he, he, he didn't have a lot of fun working with me on the script. He said it was like having the clap because I, <laughs> cause, cause I, I made him rewrite himself uh. till we got it right. Because I would look and I said, well, look, you're either going to write it. Or I'm going to do it. I think you should do it, because he and you know Mike never rewrote himself after that, and he never had another produced screenplay. Hmm. But we, I so that was his only produced screenplay, own produced screenplay. And I, I was hard, not hard, but I, I knew when it was working in my mind, and and I when I didn't think it was working, I knew we had to fix that, and it just came back to either you're going to do it or I'm going to do it. And I said, I think you'd be wise if you did it. Then you would always be able to say, it's yours. And he did. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's how that happened.
0: What, uh, what mistakes did you make early on directing, if any come to mind? Or yeah, what lessons I think
1: um, the, um, I, you know, direct, I thought I had to make up my own shot list every day. So I'd I'd be, you know, working late at night after a long day of like how I would do the shots. And I don't, um, you know, I had Dean Simler, this really world-class cinematographer. And I I think I made a mistake worrying about that aspect of it, you know, because if I, you know, look at directing is kind of like, you know, um, you know, unless you don't, you know, unless you watch a lot of porn, it's like, it's like you kind of. You don't really know how other people make love, right? You don't know how other people direct. I, was I hadn't where that was going. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know how other people directed. Right. You know, I'd only been on a few movies, right? So I wasn't sure how I was supposed to direct. But I had my own nice. idea about how. Right. But it's like, so if you don't see anybody do it, how do you know if you're doing it right? Yeah. You know, no you just reference. you kind of like yeah. Maybe that was a maybe you'll edit that out. You know, you're just.
0: How do you know? No, no, it makes perfect sense. You're
1: kind of trying to, yeah. f- your own way. Uh, I I actually direct sometimes with a chalkboard, and that has a lot to do with my own athletic background. Sometimes when I have really big scenes, I'll pull out a chalkboard, and I'll look at somebody, because a lot of times they'll be doing what you're doing, which is uh, they're giving me some chin boogies right, right. like that. But what I realize is they're they're afraid. The actor's afraid, and he's going like this. He's 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 me at the chalkboard when I'm in the fourth grade. Uh, he's
0: nodding, but he's, he's, nodding, but he's not hearing me. Right.
1: So when I go out to do a really big explosive take and he's supposed to be somewhere and he's like over there and I go, hey, what happened? I was looking right at you and he's going – so I a long time ago, I go, wait a second. Maybe he's a visual guy. Maybe he's basically – his head's bobbing up and down because he's saying, please don't look at me. Please don't talk to me. So I found that that chalkboard helped a lot of people. Hmm. They physically understood. And would you use the chalkboard – to storyboard, or what would you be doing? No, mostly in big action sequences mm-hmm. where you got to be here, you oh, so got to be there. Like I wouldn't sports, use like a sports. chalkboard yeah. in, a, in a in a sit around thing, but I would find that when I had to communicate with a lot of people, got with it. A lot so going almost on. like a football
0: playing. I mean, Absolutely. you have the X's and so the circles. This is what's right?
1: going to happen? And I go, you know, you, don't forget if there's a shooting and you're over here, you're going to have to be ducking your head. You're going ha- I need for you to be doing that. You know, don't, um, uh, you know, and. So, it, so it was like that. I think you know, I compensated for how I learn with other people. So, I, do have- I mean, there was other mistakes. You know, I, um, I think I, you know, when I finally, when we, when we kill the, the one, uh, the one Native American, the Pawnee, in the um, uh, finally in the river, he, they're chasing him down the river. I think I wouldn't have gotten such a circle around him. I think I would have just had them look. And then pour in on him. There was a moment, though, where they they were glad they caught him. I just felt like the circle was too, too. Much. There was just it was just too perfect. Uh, I just thought there was this kind of thing where he realized he couldn't run anymore. They look, they look, and then they just descend on him. So I look at that and I think that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that.
0: Such a great movie. Uh, I, I was really struck by it. I only I only saw Dance with Wolves for the first time uh, a few years ago. I was be- I was becoming very interested in the Lakota Sioux and looking at a lot of, um, sort of Native American heritage and mythology and whatnot. But anyway, I mean,
1: <laughs> that, that movie was different than a lot of movies for in the sense that that was a journey movie. It wasn't a plot movie. It's like how are we going to rob the bank? Well, you 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 get your crew, you, you get your plan, and then something starts to go wrong with your plan and. You know, you know, it, it was a, you didn't know where the movie was going. And I i think people were able to just go for the ride.
0: Oh, well, just the, I mean, the entire transformation, uh, of the, the protagonist throughout the movie. I, uh, you don't need the, the extra kudos, but it, it had a real impact on me. So thank you for helping to put that out into the world. You have so many different interests. Like you'd mentioned, you have, uh, the longstanding interest in music. You have, uh, obviously the, the acting and the directing very manually literate. I mean, you, you know how to work with your hands, framing houses, et cetera. Uh, and I'm holding here in my left hand, this is the explorers guild. And this is uh sort of a, a book after my own heart in a way. it's a, this is a thick tome, but why writing and why the explorers guild? How did this come together? Well, it
1: came together. Uh, it, 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 it it's not how I, it wasn't on my, uh, agenda to do this. I, as I go through my life, I'm always really open to meeting people. And in and, and since there was a, a writer, uh, and 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 a couple of his friends wanted to meet me, and I was told that he was very very talented. But you know that they wanted to meet me at some point and talk about some story ideas that they might have had. And 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 I I had a level of trust in the person that told me they were good. And that kind of thing, and i I like you know uh, I, my mind's always open to things, so um we met not with the idea that we were going to write a book I was we met I was going to listen to what they had to say, and uh, that person was John Baird, and uh, we met at the four seasons actually john's um John's with us I mean you were nice enough to invite him in and and let him be part of this. Of course. Hey
2: guys, thanks for letting me crash. Yeah. Although, you know, I think, uh, I can be a more effective salesperson sometimes, uh, <laughs> when I'm out of the picture. But thanks, <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for having me anyway.
0: Of course. No, I'm just, I'm just so curious how something of this magnitude, uh, manifests. Yeah. Because, well, yeah. So I, I mean, I'd just love to, love to hear you expand on what happened at the meeting and then what what followed after that. Well, we had, he came
1: in and kind of had this, uh idea that i was i couldn't get my arms around really what he was saying
2: and uh yeah (laughs) there was a thing
1: you know anybody has to hard sometimes on a cold meeting to get traction and john was having trouble getting traction and but but it turns out he was you know in his favor the story he was talking about was pretty elaborate Mm -hmm. but so it was like how do you do that really really quickly and i couldn't get my arms around i said why don't we talk the following week you come up to santa barbara uh we won't be in the four seasons we'll be in my backyard and um i i i have to admit that the story was still a little bit unclear i think john was still working it it's, it's <laughs> but <two. laughs> but i had but i had I, I had a bigger feeling about who this guy was and i thought i want to be around this guy John Barron. What, so what gave you that feeling? I can't, I can't always say it. You know, I can't always articulate it, but you know, you feel you're around somebody that has a different voice, it thinks in a different way as a wicked wit. And, um, it was just, I, I believe the story was. There underneath the stuttering,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so John, maybe you can tell me because uh, obviously there are, there are two sides to this story, right? It's kind of like the Rashomon of of, mm-hmm. of, of uh, uh, the birthing of a book. So yeah. why did you want to meet Kevin? Uh,
2: well, I'd like to tell you that we had some really well worked out plan, and it was just a question of communicating it to him. Um, I think we had a general idea of a secret society of explorers. You know, we thought that this would be a gateway to just innumerable stories. Uh and it was we were presenting it as a kind of throwback to that classic epic adventure storytelling. And uh, you know, given an opportunity, uh, opportunity to meet with someone of Kevin's stature, of course we wouldn't say no, but the you know, the fact is he has you know, what we discover is he's got he he's sort of a fan of those same old classic stories that that we actually love. Um and so, you know, things kind of took off from there. We both found that we love that big canvas storytelling. We love the idea of, you know, secret parts in the world and hidden histories, and the collaboration took off from there. But I think that, you know, he's not he is not mischaracterizing the our first couple of meetings at all. And it had less, I think, to do with with being starstruck and more just, you know this is a very anti hollywood story it we didn't have a, an end game we didn't have even a format that we liked. I had a couple of sketches uh, a couple of storylines a couple of <laughs>
0: ideas right it wasn't aliens meets die hard Or
2: okay. <laughs> <No, laughs> i'd right, hope it was uh I, my pitching is t- today is still terrible um it you know so w- and I, I don't know if that was Part of maybe the allure for Kevin because he w- this wasn't something that was presented to him fully formed by any stretch. It just had some elements and some things that he I think he may have sparked to, and it was always going to be something that we formed together.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, so what? When did uh, when did you decide to actually pull the trigger and, and work together on this?
1: I think um, I think it was that second time, or did you come up one more time? Well,
2: and again to Kevin's credit, it was. It was, and it was, uh, we're recording in a place right now and it was maybe five feet from where we're talking. And he said, yeah, you know what? I, I still really don't get this, but let's do it. Uh, and it, as a, as a testament to, you know, you, you probably heard him as he's recreating some of his biggest successes and people always see him when the rock is rolling down the hill. That's the part they see. What they don't see is all the pushing that, and, and he's pushing it downhill. No mistake. But I think by the time, you know, people see him, it's, you know, you kind of think he's got it pretty easy. Uh, I've been witness, you know, myself now to the, this is eight or nine years ago when we met. And mm-hmm. um, there was just all kinds of, all, all sorts of misfires, all sorts of, you know, uh, trying some things and scrambling back, reformulating, trying it again. Before, about four years ago, we we sort of, I, I came to him saying, look, let's just do this as the book.
0: Okay, so initially was the plan to do a whole collection of 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 multimedia properties or was it intended to be a film initially and then decided to be in this iteration the book?
2: Well, it was always a book. That's my background mm-hmm. uh, in sort of minor books. Um, but, you know, we think that the, the story, uh, the, the structure of it is so expansive. It lends itself. You know, I think 360 degree media was a popular thing at the time, perhaps still is. Um, and we saw a lot of opportunity there. I think we tried, you know, we tried animating it for what could have been, you know, in these very small chunks, Kevin put some of our smaller animations together and thought, you know, maybe we'd have a go from a web series, or maybe this is an animated TV series or mm-hmm. something like that.
1: It was really cool. We did an, we did animate it, and everything I saw about as once we started working, I just I just picked up the momentum of loving it. And you know, we talked earlier about some of my films that I haven't done the sequels to. I saw this as something that had innumerable stories. Right, you know, it right. just was going to, it could be, it was big storytelling. It was big canvas. So I thought to myself, gravity's going to just fall right to our, everybody's going to come right to our door. This is what people are looking for. And so we, we did this. And I think John's, you know, alluding to the fact that no people didn't. They wanted to know, well, you know, who's the boy in it, you know, and, you know, there is a little boy and he go, could he have a magic watch, make him fly? Because our boy doesn't have a magic what watch or fly.
2: Lesbians. Yeah,
1: we could get a lesbian in here, too. And and so we I said, know, wait, are yeah. These, are these Hollywood people giving Yeah, well, you? John heard those versions and I heard the, the magic watch <laughs> version, which is we can put them in because they exist in the world, but maybe not in our world in this particular moment. So we think our boy's better <laughs> off having a hole in his head than having a watch in his <laughs> magic pocket. watch. Yeah.
0: So what happened
1: was it, it didn't work. <laughs> and then we went on and we kind of, kind of, that was like, again, that was uh, probably five years ago and we stopped. And, uh, I think John felt that I was humiliated by all the no's by executives. I wasn't, uh, but I appreciated him. That's the only time I ever saw John get really mad. He goes, he goes, these people shouldn't be saying no to you. And I needed to look at him and think, well, who am I, John? Other than a storyteller, they can say no. It is what it is. But I loved his defensiveness for me, you know, and, and, um, but we, we stayed the course. We went off and wrote a Western together and John came back and said, I'm going to write the book because that's my background. And I said, go, man,
0: go. And, uh, so this is, um, this is a beautiful book. I, I, I mentioned before we started recording that I wanted to be a comic book penciler for a very long time. Uh, aesthetically, how did you think about putting together the book? Uh, well, because I mean, just yeah. the, 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 it's clearly very, very consciously decided. I mean, the paper stock, the tint of the paper. I mean, it's, it's just a, a physically mm-hmm. beautiful.
2: Yeah. Well, my, my, I have a, a long background because uh, as you might know, writing books is not a great way to make a living. And, you know, though, Though I had a couple, I, I had to support myself doing other things, and I was always a, an art director and a designer, and wanted to be a, a, an illustrator. Um, and I got to, I had a lot of experience in not just design, but right through press. I, I you know, got very into the, because uh, I really like the the sort of ins and outs of paper stock and printing techniques and finishing techniques. Um, so the the two things I I had done before this, you know, though they didn't find much of an audience they were very, same thing, very carefully done. Each page was, you know, well thought through and this always was going to have a graphic element in it. Before we leave the, um, you know, the idea of Kevin just sort of, say, you know, saying go man go on the book, it, it's true that that was the initial brief, you know, he where we'd kind of ping pong some story for many years and then when it came format wise, he was doing his things and I was going to run off with the book. It started that way but the thing I really always need to say, because I think people will make certain assumptions when they see there's a celebrity, um, is someone of Kevin's stature and someone who's, you know, me, they're, I think the the thought is probably that here's a guy who's probably reading it along with the rest of America and wanted to you know, sort of show up when it's on press, make sure his name is in the right place. This was really, uh, you know, it may have started, he may have started in more of a backseat role on it because this was a book and not a film and because it was something I brought to him. But... As pages started coming in, it was very natural for him just to slip into it like he has, you know, on any other project. And I mean, you know, this, it started in a general way, kind of shaping it like you would bounce material, but then it was, he's bringing characters and storylines and dialogue. And then he's, you know, page by page with me, always making time, knocking these out, getting through it. And at a certain point, it was no longer something that was mine that he was giving input on. This was ours
0: and we were collaborating on it. What, um, what would a jam session look like? In other words, to organize those inputs and try to synthesize it. This is something I've always been fascinated by because I've never had a writing partner, which I quite frankly envy a lot. And I've, I've come to know a lot of comedy writers who work in film and they're almost always at least a pair. Uh, in this particular case, how did you guys collaborate and sort of capture and decide then what would be drafted?
2: And there's, a, there's a third component too, as you kind of alluded to. I didn't illustrate this thing myself. Uh, it's just, it's way beyond my talents and certainly my endurance. There's a guy named Rick Ross who's the, who is the uh, major part of ma- making this book what it is. Um, you know, we joke like we'd like to characterize it for you as like a, you know, sort of an extended keyboard that we're both kind of, you know, jamming on in our berets. My process is very, very solitary, uh, generally. And it's, it, I think, you know, probably a lot of people who hack their way through, especially this kind of writing, um, it starts in a, just a, 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 room, um, alone. And, you know, there were long stretches like that. But the rewarding part for me was getting to bring product up here. Uh, Kevin, I think it has a little more of a, of a kinetic type of process where, you know, he, I think it's the actorly directorial sort of mindset where he envisions sort of living in these people and he, you know, he can sort of from, from character to character and he, Knows what's how certain people would act and how certain people wouldn't. He knows where he wants things to lead and how best to get there. And so, you know, where I might do, where I might be following up on his ideas from last time and bringing them up in a certain form, he would kind of springboard off of that, and then it was kind of following around and burning through notebooks while he just goes. So Mm -hmm. that it was a very different from what I uh, am used to doing, but it was it, it was sometimes very hard to keep up.
0: Did you capture that flow of ideas in say? A single word document on a board on paper. How did you capture and then process?
2: I'll occasionally come up if the, if you know because something like this, there are just storylines on storylines and wheels within wheels, and it's you know every once in a while, even just for me, I need to to whiteboard it. And he. Uh, you know, always sort of take shots at me for being sort of an egghead, and he. But he's always very indulgent. No, no, I'll go with this. I'll go with this. Not bring up some sort of chart or something that 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 will go through. But mostly it was. it Mostly it's sort of theater of his mind, and you know, like uh, you know, I, I can kind of be there, uh, you know, sort of rolling with it and trying to trying to get what I need out of it, and sort of you know give and take some of that. So mostly it's, it's really just conversations. There like
1: would this. be a level of point by point thing. Sometimes if, you know, I, I would have to write down everything that I'm thinking about what I was actually thinking about and that would go to him. Um, and then sometimes out of that, when we come up, then we would really begin to rift because we, we, you know, it's made up of five books. People call them five chapters. We call them five books and we would advance down the line, even though we were in, in, in book two, sometimes we we, would be dealing with what was going to happen in four and five and actually then circle back to, to something else. So it was like that. Sometimes it's written down. Sometimes it's on my feet. And and, um, what do you mean by that?
0: Oh, um, oh, just, on, I, I got it. On, on improvised. I, yeah, sir. Well, not, well, improv- not, not improvised. I'm not not just, improvising,
1: please. but, you know, trying to break it down. It's John's voice, absolutely. And I think it's really appropriate that, um, you know, when you talk about the book and you look, it was really imp- imp- important that John's name stand alone up top there. That was very important to me. I had a lot to do with the cover and versus what was on it versus what is, mm-hmm. you know, what people wanted. You know, Rick Ross and I, We always wanted to be a part of something that could stand the test of time. When you talk about these books, you know, um, Kipling, Jules Verne, Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, I mean, Mark Twain, Conrad, the kind of books that have that heft that sit up on the, on the shelf. That's what we wanted. Mm -hmm. Now, whether we got there or not is nearly as important as what it was we wanted to do. I liked the idea of taking something on, off the shelf that has the heft of this actually having to blow the dust off it. And that's what this book is. This book is almost an heirloom for me, a book that who reads us goes, I'm going to pass this down to my little brother, my little sister. I'm going to, I'm going to get this book for them because there hasn't, you know, where are these books? I mean, we're looking in our, our last century and the century before for our classics, who's writing them for us now. That's what we wanted. That was our love of it. And so I brought, you know i guess the love of that to, to to the characters that i liked in this and um where where we wanted to go with them but only john writes in this pecu- in this specific way i i can't write the way he writes mm-hmm. i can see my stories in there but i can't see them as beautiful as as how john has written them
0: and who is the uh, who's the target audience like who is your sort of ideal Reader or or type of reader who who would uh, who would like this book? uh What type of what type of person? What type yeah, of reader?
2: I, you know, I, I think we're not always the best equipped. I think you know, I'm sure our marketing gang at uh, Simon and Schuster at Atria Books, who've been really excellent partners too, might have a, a a real good spiel for you on the the demo for this. But when you were uh, writing it, like yeah. who is no, in I your? Think that, yeah. That's exactly it. I think when we were like anything, and especially when you're talking about four years of just. There's not going to be any feedback from the world while you're doing it. You really have to be doing it to please yourself. And that yeah, was, I think one of the, the things that set me loose most was Kevin saying, "Look, you know, ultimately w- we're not going to judge the success of this by units sold or or you know where it where it goes in the world if it makes a big movie or not. Don't worry about the movie. Don't worry about all that stuff. Worry about doing something that's meaningful to us." That he says, you know, like he said, like that that can sort of sit on the shelf. I mean, this is this is a a big big statement. I don't necessarily say we delivered on it, but the aspiration was always sit on a shelf with Melville, Robert Louis Stevenson, Connor, Kipling, you know, try to hold a place up there. And if we feel like we're we're at least trying for that, and we feel like we're being honest to the ideas that we have and true to that, we're gonna reach. Maybe not everybody, but the people we do reach those those ten percenters who feel it and who are going to feel like this was really written from me. I've been waiting for something like this, and it hasn't been in the market. That's going to be our success.
1: Yeah, you, know, I, I, you know, you can quantify. You can actually put an age. Okay, a twelve year old. You know, a 12-year-old who's pretty, you know, really wants to get with it, who loves reading. But six-year-olds are going to become 12-year-olds. So when we were also doing the book, there was a notion of, well, can we simplify the language? Can mm-hmm. we – uh I don't want to use the word dumb it down, but there's yeah. a – I don't know how else to explain it. What do you mean, simplify it? Yeah, but This is how we want to talk. Because when you think something's going to travel through time, people are going to find it. Yeah. And they find it when they're appropriate. Look at when you make bull Durham or you make 10 cup, there's an R to it. Okay. So the 12 year old can't see it, but when he's going to see it. Right. So it, there's something about trying to be true. The problem that we deal with, I think, in the world artistically is that everybody's got this little meter on their shoulder. something like go faster or somebody's like, you know, a, a, um, pace. It's going too slow. When we decided that we were going to make a book, we weren't going to have anybody tell us how to do it other than how we felt about it. And we felt that this could become perhaps a classic in our own time.
0: So so this is not, not maybe directly related, but for you, Kevin, after, after all of the accolades, the awards, uh, the box office success, how do you continue to, um, develop yourself as an artist? How do you think about that?
1: I just move towards the things that interest me. And, um, if I get really interested if I'm not doing a movie and I'm really interested in Little League, I'm going to do Little League with my kids in the spring and I'll be really interested. Uh, I, I move towards, I move towards the things and towards the people that interest me. And, um, and story usually has a, a bit of a attachment to almost all of those things. The poetry of telling a story.
0: What um, John, for you, what type of, um, fiction or nonfiction writers uh, have most influenced your thinking about storytelling?
2: I think we mentioned a few of the the canon. Um, you know, when we talk about sort of more recent comparables, we ch- you know just generally to kind of put this in a framework for people, go to Raiders of the Lost Ark. But what we're really doing is drawing from the same well that 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 those guys drew from, which is, I mean, that specific was probably more the the H Rider Haggard books, the King Solomon's Mind, the mm-hmm. Alan Mysteries, but. Uh, so for me, they're the, you know, the, the, um, Treasure Island, you know, Moby Dick, like all, all these classics filtered through, uh, kind of Thomas Pynchon, you know, you'll see that kind of layering and, and, uh, sort of creeping into a surrealism toward the end that I always, uh, dug in him. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's a reason that those stories of, of. Conrad and Kipling stay evergreen and they may be thought of now as kind of required reading but I think our idea was there's a reason why these stories still thrill us today if we can as Kev says well more metaphorically blow a little of the dust off it and bring it to a new audience we felt that there was a that that would succeed there's also just you know uh, parenthetically when you mentioned the graphics that was another decision too of I think because what what you'll see when you open it is it's, it's a little bit of a hybrid between a traditional novel and not just an illustrated novel, but a paneled sort of graphic novel mm-hmm. and that, but you know, sort of, I think it was a little more of a problem than we would an- have anticipated. Just with the gatekeepers of, I heard a lot of eh, "it's kind of between two chairs." Was a was a phrase that pecked at me for a oh, while. Was it heads between
0: two chairs? This is
2: kind of this kind of lands between two chairs. The oh, idea oh. is, are, are we going to put it in the graphic? Fiction yeah, book? I was, or I was paper? the first one to say, "Huh." <laughs> uh, I know, I know, but which I, I know. I mean, there are a lot of knee jerk things. People's job is—it's a—you got to classify it one way or the other, and something yeah. that's difficult to classify—is usually like thanks, but you know, no thanks. Well, it's a
0: very anachronistic element of old school publishing, right? Where they think in terms of a retail store and not a search algorithm, where it's right. like and <laughs> word of mouth. And you so think, like, it's, well, it's, it's my unfortunate. feeling was if we yeah. put
2: it in front of somebody, they're gonna get it or they're not. And there are you know people who will stumble when it's going from a straight paragraph into paneled graphics, who are you know not gonna get it. I feel like after the third or fourth time though. You know, the idea was always that this was, well, the, the graphics weren't going to be ancillary. There weren't going to be something you could skip. The story would go right through them. You know, I wanted the art to be really integrated in, in, in a way that you don't see in a lot of places. But I also wanted the, you know, our story to have a lot of heft when it went right to the text. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of an odd duck. And we, you know, neither fish nor fowl. We heard a lot of that. And we we're like, you know what? It, 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 we think when people see it, they're going to get it. And that, that was more.
1: I, I always remember the joy of when I'd have one of those books, Treasure Island. That I could see in the middle of that book that there was pictures.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, you'd see the glossy And pages. I wanted yeah. to get, and I wanted to get to them. Yeah.
1: I did. And I somehow knew in my heart that I wasn't s- supposed to just go to the, <laughs> you know, it's not like the <laughs> centerfold of Playboy. Let's yeah. just get right to it. Yeah. Um, but. You know, and you had to earn your way. But I was always, you know, maybe this was the jock part of me, but I was always like, I wish there'd be more pictures, <laughs> um, you know, because I, I, that always, that always let you really imagine the duel on the beach, you know, mm-hmm. with what those guys had cutlasses and they were going to go and who was going to win. And there was something about that. And so, you know, I kind of wanted more, I wanted, you know, more of that. And I think, but the reality was when you came to those pictures, often you just stopped, -hmm. And looked at it. You just stopped. And here it's not that same experience. It's, you can stop and enjoy, but the story is going to travel through those pictures. Mm -hmm. Um, so it doesn't, it's not just that you're, you're feasting on it, although the, the drawing of, of, of Rick is, is that spectacular. And I think, but really the, the pictures are, you're, you're, you're still in the middle of the story.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, it's a cool combo. I mean, I, um, I remember with, you know, my last book, decided to make multi-sections illustrations photographs and i'd never done either before really (laughs) my previous two books it's a huge undertaking i mean it's uh from a production standpoint i can imagine it being um quite challenging because i I, did rick start when did rick start on the illustrations was it after the primary text was done or was it concurrent
2: yeah well in the interest of getting it in in and in a sort of finite finite time frame he i think after the first chapter we brought rick in and there's a sort of an interesting story behind that uh, our finding of rick but uh well it's, hey
0: well, i like interesting stories well,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well i mean look at you know um, john he said look i john's a beautiful uh, drawer and himself uh, an illustrator he mentioned that and and it's really good but he understood that the volume of work that was going to be here was just unbelievable. It was epic. Yeah. It's a, you know, we, it's, it's epic. And I hope that people out there, uh, however, we've managed to bore them go. The book is better than this interview that at least on our part, I think, I think Tim, you're doing great, but the book is really special. And I, it's a great, it's a great thing to, 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 to give yourself and to, give a young friend you know it's a it's a stocking stuffer if you will but we we knew uh, that he was going to this was going to be an amazing uh task to illustrate this probably should have been four guys but um <laughs> he wanted somebody to be able to draw in the vein of Windsor McKay now i don't know if you know who Windsor McKay is and we've been to big giant book signings and and, and I always think I'm going to be blown away by the intellectuals and usually only one of them out of 400 knows who Winsor McKay is. Um, you know, that always makes me happy because my problem was, you know, when John said, well, we've got to get somebody that draws like Winsor McKay. If you're me, you go, then why don't we get Winsor McKay? Well, Winsor <laughs> McKay's dead. He was, you know, doing this in the twenties. You know, he, he was really the father of this kind of work, if you will, or whatever. And, um, so John, I said, so how do we find this Windsor McKay? And John said, let's get him in Craigslist, and that's what we did. He he put a he put an ad in Craigslist. He threw out that bait, knowing that only a few, you know, like the dog who can only hear a certain sound out there. Yeah, no, that's genius. Only a few people are going to know who Windsor McKay is, so that he we knew the line out in front wasn't going to be that long, and out of that great artists, culled down to one fabulous artist. And Rick happened to be in between jobs. He thought he had a month to kill and he ended up working on this for almost three years. Did every bit of art on it, including the cover. It's really, it's really a, um, it's a jewel
0: of a book was well, a beautiful piece of work. I mean, and I haven't yet had the chance to read it, but uh, it, it sort of combines a lot of elements and and uh, aspects or genres of storytelling that I find very appealing. And you were, we were talking about the genre and the slotting, which the categorization, which I'm really uh, disillusioned by in a sense, because for instance, I mean, you have these books and you're talking about age earlier. Uh, and there's some fantastic books out there, whether it's, you know, The Never Writing Story or Philip Pullman's, uh His Dark Materials. I think it is like The Golden Compass, where that's in the young adults section, which in my mind meant, oh, this is written for young adults. And I picked up the book and I had to look up probably 200 words, <laughs> including a lot of nautical terminology. I was like, how can a 12 year old read this? But this is great writing. It's really compelling. And I think the fact of the matter is that if you put something out there that is... Uh, truthful in so much as it's what you wanted to write that uh you know younger readers will rise to the challenge if it's you don't that's have right to, there's
1: no ceiling on who's going to be able to yeah
0: this. you don't have to dumb it down yeah um so I'm, I'm very excited to dig in uh i assume people can find this everywhere in terms of amazon i think so. barnes
1: and normal amazon uh, the usual and i think you know um you know, and a lot of the independent bookstores, you know, are picking it up. It's, 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 it's selling. And six days in, we were able to jump to the, you know, New York Times bestseller, which was a kind of a surreal moment. And, and, uh, really, you know, I, I, when you have partners, you're really glad for them. I was really glad for Rick and for John to be able to say that one day. I, I do think these guys are going to be, you're going to be hearing about John uh, into next century. That's what I believe, and uh, and you know, and I'm really glad that you gave us a chance to talk about this this book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, where can people find this uh, online? I, I'm going to put all the show notes for those people listening. Uh, there'll be links to everything we've discussed, uh, including the book, obviously, uh, in the show notes at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out. But for those people who want to find it on social on the web uh where are the best places for them to look
2: there is a welcome to the explorersguild.com uh that is set up by the publisher and that has links there to not only the places you can buy it online but also our various sort of social media feeds i think there are, and i haven't got them memorized i'm i'm that's okay really
1: we also have our own we created a website what's it called
2: <laughs> uh well we've got you know our facebook thing our instagram i don't know well, what do you say our, what do you
1: call our facebook thing you know, I it? don't
0: know. <laughs> that's that's the beauty of the internet. That but what, text. you
1: know what it is? If you can find it out there, this is like a treasure hunt for this everybody is like listening. A list. But if you find it, you're gonna see exactly how we start it. We have all our starting materials. Oh, you do? Very cool. And we did our own kind of the making of interviews about our own process. So it's it's almost as long as a book now.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, you see our drawings, we oh, do that's them, cool. we do time lapse drawings.
0: Oh nice, I so love So if you really want to see the, how this book came together. Scenes.
1: Um if you could, I, I don't even know where my own website is.
0: Well, that's, that's the beauty of, uh, of the show notes. So folks, I will, I'll provide links to all of that. Uh, but, uh, Kevin, do you have a few minutes to do just a, a handful of more sort of rapid-fire questions? Yeah. Oh. Uh, and, uh, my and lawyer's
1: and, standing by and my other lawyer standing. I have a legion of lawyers, so go ahead shoot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have, I'm, getting, I'm, getting the Tim, green, I'm getting the green flag. Tim's
1: the- eyes got big for a second, yeah. and they just normally don't do that.
0: <laughs> my, the good news is my eyes are already kind of fishball size, so they, they start off big. Well, he, you keep wanting to go outside like me on the piano. It looks fun here. Oh, it's gorgeous outside. Uh, so everybody take a look at the show notes um, we will come back to that before we take off um, just a, a handful of questions here uh, Kevin and obviously very much appreciate the time when you think of the word successful who is the first person who comes to mind and why
1: the first person uh, I think Steven Spielberg's really successful Um, you know, I, uh, and I think Thomas Jefferson was successful, you know, um, I, I guess I'm not leaping to the, the giants of today. Uh, but you know, as, as you drill down on that list, you know, then, then you start to go to Bezos and you start to go to, to jobs and you go to Bill Gates, really successful, really, uh, found their way. But I guess. At first blush, I, I don't know. I just said Spielberg is, I mean, here's a guy that's probably not so dominant in his personality that has been been able to do everything he's wanted to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Is, um, is there anything else about how he's led his career otherwise that you particularly admire or? I don't think Stephen
1: has limited himself. I think there were early on people tried to say, oh, we can only make this kind of story. This guy is really gifted. He's a really gifted filmmaker. And I think he's, I think he yeah. has, challenged almost all genres he really he really has i you know from sugarland express to you know you know it's he's um uh i think you know to 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 minority report and to these different things i besides the obvious ones you know that really changed the way people look at film you know you know jaws and and et and close encounters were giant giant movies and i think that he he has really bounced around i think he's been incredibly successful
0: a very diverse canon of work. I do. Uh, do you have any favorite documentaries?
1: Yeah, um, it was called Coney Island. Coney Island. D- um, uh, narrated by uh, McCollum, David McCollum, and I, it blew me away. It blew me away to finally understand that Coney Island was so much more than just uh, roller coasters. It was a, it was the most popular place on the earth at the turn of the century. It was bigger than Paris. It was bigger than Chicago, and it was because all the inventors were going there. They were, um, they were allowed to do things. The medical profession, which wouldn't allow this guy who said, "Hey, I think I know how to keep babies alive," you know, I can heat them in my incubation, and they just ran him out on town. Uh, Coney Island said, "Do it here." And so he did. And it was the most popular exhibit. You could walk in and see these babies that were kept alive. Uh, the great Edison, all these guys were hanging around Coney Island. We think of it as in terms of the warriors, like decrepit, uh, um, uh, roller coasters and right. things falling apart. Coney Island, there was three, three competing parks that were all as big as Disneyland. Luna wow. Park, Coney Island, and, it was, it was the place to be in the world. And so look this documentary up, oh, Coney awesome. Island, narrated by David McCollum. I, I was blown away by it.
0: What are your, uh, when do you go to bed and wake up in the morning?
1: When do I go to bed? Mm-hmm. Um, I schedule? don't, I don't have a regular schedule when I go to bed, but when I wake up is pretty specific. Uh, the alarm starts going off in one, two, Then the dog, three people end up in bed. There's five people in bed, dog, and now the cat coexists there too. It's really a problem. (laughs) Um, my kids are really hot, way too hot to be around. It's like warm. The bed's not comfortable. It's just now it's just too hot. I want out. Um, what time is that? That's, well, that's probably around seven. And we got to be in the car at 10 to eight, or I got to sign this crummy little sheet that says why you're late. Our name is, in it so much at their school. They all go to the same school. Uh And, you know, there's tears before they get there sometimes because they're five, six, and seven. There's backpacks that are, like, all over. My kids are just like me. They can't keep their shit together. It's everywhere. <laughs>
0: tools and baseballs and it's just all everywhere yeah. it's
1: just everywhere and when you say where's your sweater they'll say it's in the car which is a bullshit answer <laughs> but it, it, i hope people understand that my life is just as cluttered <laughs> as theirs, probably but uh my wife and i both if i'm not making a movie and i haven't made one since last november just taken a year into my own way uh, we drive together uh we did this morning uh, we drive them and we drop them off i don't know why you know, I, I look like a dorky dad in the seat and I get out and give them their backpacks and my wife's driving and it's like, I don't know how that looks, but it's how my life plays. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, do you have any, uh, well, this is a, I suppose you could choose either one of these questions. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Um, and or is there, do you have any bad habit or bad habits that you're currently working to get uh, to overcome? anyway
1: yeah i wish i was more disciplined you know about wanting you know to work out because i need to but i hate it i hate thinking about the clothes you have to wear if you go to a gym i hate the idea of picking up lead it makes no sense to me i don't want to run with headphones i want to if i'm going to run i want to make sure i'm watching the news i'm not disciplined about taking care of my body i wish i could um but it's it's not It just
0: exercise is just a drag man (laughs) (laughs) i'll do some thinking on that i might have some ideas for you is it true that you did all of your that you've done all or most of your riding equestrian work in your movies yeah i've done most of it i've had some i've always had stunt guys
1: in my movies and they have done some really really difficult things but because it's important for me to put the camera as close to the action as possible i've done most of my riding but i but i have been covered by excellent uh, uh, stuntmen. I've had stuntmen make me look faster and make the jump look farther. But uh, I have put myself in the middle of stampedes. Uh, I don't know why, That's with no reins and yeah. going. So I like that part of it. I, I I always think who would who wouldn't want to go after the bad guy yourself? Why do you yeah. just automatically? give that up you know i i heard roger moore who i think is great but used to say oh no that's too far i don't do that and it might be it might have been just a step over get my stunt. no i'm not going to wrestle here you know um i kind of wanted that you know i wanted to to jump on it and and save the day who wouldn't want to swing you know from rope to rope in robin hood who wouldn't want to do that i had a stunt guy help me but i but whenever i can i do it yeah
0: is there are there any particular historical figures that you identify with?
1: Not that I identify with, but you know, Mark Twain is someone I think about a lot. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, Lincoln, I think a lot about. Of you know, and uh, and and Jefferson, you heard me mention him. Is yeah. somebody I think a lot of, about. Um, yeah. You know, um, I would have liked to have met Crazy Horse. Um, I would have liked to have met uh, Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce. Mm -hmm. I would have liked to known, you know, you know, how fucked up they must have felt about at the, at the end going, Jesus, we're just going to have to fight for our life. And we've been here for thousands of years. And who are you people that would make me, make me run for my life and watch my brothers and sisters and my children die? Who the fuck are you? Uh, this used to be the Garden of Eden what happened.
0: And um I, I know we don't have time to get into it today, but uh Tatanka, the story of the bison, mm-hmm. that, uh can you describe that briefly for people so they can sort of look into it? It's a very please?
1: humble little information center. I had bigger ideas for it, that it could be a hotel, that it could ultimately be a, a museum. If there's anyone out there, uh entrepreneurial enough. I'm an entrepreneurial guy, but I've put about as much as I can. If, if anyone thinks there's something missing in this country, like where where the first people went, especially on the plains, uh I have a place where we could make a great museum together. And uh I I, I, I fear that I've long chased everybody away from this interview a long time ago. Oh, no.
0: But there's if there's somebody the out there
1: there's somebody out there that burning to keep that story, which is our story, alive. I have the place to put it and along with it I'll I'll uh put these incredible statues the story of the of the bison these bronzes that are that are amazing Sounds and, right there in Rapid City right there in actually Deadwood so um I need a partner now I've done I've done all the heavy lifting I can but if if somebody is in love with our history then and 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 has a way
0: through money and love of the history to keep it alive you come be my partner so I will, uh, do you, do you recall your Twitter handle offhand? That's what my what you, handle? Your Twitter,
1: uh, I don't, do Twitter. Okay.
0: All right. We don't do Twitter. I will, uh, I don't
1: do Facebook either, though I'm told I have an account. <laughs> okay.
0: So uh, I will do some detective work and put in the show notes, uh, Thanks. perhaps how you can, uh, how you can track down, uh, Mr. Costa. I
1: just There's need one guy. Stuff. I just, just need just one guy. I don't, I don't want a bunch of partners. I need one guy who goes, I like this stuff and I got a ton of money. And, uh, we're, we are going to remember this stuff. I'm going to do it in a really classy way.
0: If you could put one billboard anywhere, uh, what would it say? What would you have on the billboard? Not the book, but just a, a uh, general.
1: I'd put it in Washington. I'd say no term limit, no, uh, you know. Oh, no term limit. Yeah. I'd say enough. You know what? We, we don't need more experience. We need, we need, a, we need a work ethic that by the time you're done there, you're so tired, you don't want to go back after one term or two terms. You're done after two. Experience is not helping us. It's clogging us up.
0: Uh, two more. That's it. Uh, what advice would you give to your 30 year old self? To my 30 year old self? Um,
1: I, I'm going to say something. The, the, you i we talked about the conservative upbringing i had the idea that you were going to do this this is how a man makes a living um my my turning point was at 22 when i said i'm going to be an actor and i don't care what anybody else thinks so i would have i wish i could have got that advice earlier but i had to actually give it to myself so um what would i give myself at 30 um i think um I would have stayed in more control of the projects
0: that I lent my name to mm. good advice Because uh, i'm thirty eight now that's the conclusion I just came to last year <laughs> in <laughs> retrospect uh and uh last question is um uh, do you have any asks or requests of everybody listening to this is there anything you'd like them to take away with them obviously um everybody will see in the show notes uh and uh elsewhere the uh the explorers guild but is there any any message or any kind of parting comment or suggestion that you'd like to make
1: well one one i obviously whatever audience is is that it's out there supporting you likes the long form of communication and they i hope your audience understands that we like it too you know, the thing that's hard for us is to go on these nighttime television shows and come up with some small pat joke. And you, then you introduce your movie and then you're done. So this has been good for me. And, and uh, I, I do want to return to the book for those who have waited through this interview with us. This was something that I didn't know that was in, was going to be in my life. And, and this book, which I hope you read, it turned out better than I thought it ever could. It was really something that I'm proud to be a a part of, and I hope you not only get the book, but the book does something to you which I think all stories or art can do, which is and it it's something we all have in common. I know that when I read something great, the first thing I want to do is share it. I know that when I hear a great song, the first thing I want to do is share it. If I hear a joke, the first thing I want to do is share it. I hope... It's the same with movies. And I hope that when you read Explorers Guild, your first instinct will be, I need to share this. And that, that really is, uh, what I hope, you know? And, uh, in, and, and my advice out there for people who get so completely, uh, overwhelmed by Christmas, it's a great way to st- to stuff your stocking take the thinking out of things you don't know what to get somebody get them the explorers go let them go on their own journey it's
0: a beautiful book and uh you're a wonderful creator i really appreciate all the time thank you and i'm a huge fan of your work so please uh continue to create and collaborate with other people and uh i'm waving to john just a few feet away also thank you I appreciate you guys making the time, and to everyone listening, you can find the show notes, links to everything at 4hourworkweek.com, all spelled out, forward slash podcast, or just go to 4hourworkweek.com and click on podcast. And as always, thank you for listening. Hey, guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday